you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your help now. Help us to hear your word, understand your word, receive your word, and walk in your word. Help me, Lord, to expound your word clearly so that Christ would be honored here this morning in our midst and that our hearts would be full, full of delight and joy in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, Philippians chapter 2, Bev read for us uh, verses 12 through 30, but this morning we're just going to be looking at uh, verses 12 to 13, but I think it's important we do a little bit of a review since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Philippians. Last week we had Dr. Fowler with us, and then the week before us was Easter Sunday and Good Friday. Um, and So here in Philippians, we've, we've really been looking at Um, Verse 27, we've been unpacking verse 27 where Paul writes in chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so that's Paul's main exhortation here. And he's really calling us to live lives as gospel citizens, to live worthy lives as gospel citizens. And so from verse 27 all the way from chapter 2 to verse 30, That's really the theme. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So several weeks ago, we we looked at in chapter 2 this call to unity and humility for the sake of the gospel in verses 1 through 4. And then verses 5 through 11, we looked at the humility of Christ and the exaltation, the vindication of Christ. And now we come to verse 12 and 13. And there's really just two things I want us to see this morning. And the first is this. We're called to work. We have a task. We have a job. We've been given a responsibility from God. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul begins this paragraph with the word therefore. And that's significant. That word therefore is connecting what Paul is saying here to what he has previously said. Paul is, you're seeing here Paul's logical argumentation. So Paul's saying, therefore, or in light of this, in light of what? In light of the fact that Christ has been humiliated, that is, he was obedient to the point of death. And not only that, in light of the fact that Christ has been humiliated, he has also been exalted and vindicated. So in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has experienced humiliation, but he has also experienced exaltation and vindication, which is our salvation. It is through Christ's humiliation and through his vindication that you and I have received our salvation. 
Paul says we've been given a task in light of that. We've been given a responsibility. We are called to work out our own salvation before God. Now, before he gives that that main exhortation, work out your own salvation, right? Therefore, work out. There's some intervening clauses that set up this main exhortation in verse 12. For example, he says, therefore, my beloved. Here, Paul is expressing his affection and his heart for these believers. When you read Philippians, it's very clear that, that Paul had this intimate relationship with the believers in Philippi. You even see that in chapter 1 where he, he speaks about how he yearns for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. But not only that, he also speaks here of their exemplary track record of obedience. Right? He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. There was a time where Paul was present with these believers in Philippi, and they were obedient to his teaching. But he's also saying, not only when I was present with you, but also in my absence. And in light of that, therefore, brothers and sisters, work out your own salvation. Now we need to ask two things. What does Paul mean by the word salvation? And what does Paul mean by work out? So first, what does Paul mean by the word salvation? Well, we, when we hear the word salvation, we know that it can refer to many things. It can refer to the day that you were first saved. When you, when you repented and you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and received forgiveness of sins, you received salvation. You were saved. But salvation also has the idea of God's total work of redemption. Not just the moment in which you were saved, but the total package of redemption. That is, your election. When God elected you, your union with Christ. Regeneration, that is, the day you were born again, the new birth. Repentance, faith, justification, that is when you were made right with God. Adoption, when he adopted you as his own child. Sanctification, the ongoing work of God's uh, sanctification in your life, conforming you into his holiness. And not only that, also your glorification. So that, that's what Paul means when he says this word salvation. It's this, this total package, this total work of redemption. And so when Paul says here, work out your own salvation, he's speaking of this ongoing work of salvation in your life, specifically your sanctification that will reach its culmination in your glorification. In other words, Paul's saying this, that a seed has been planted in you. A seed has been planted in you, this seed of salvation. But that seed must grow and blossom into a beautiful tree. And so when Paul says this word salvation, he's speaking of the ongoing work of redemption in your life. Secondly, what does he mean by work out your own salvation? Well, I think the best way to answer that is to first look at what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is this. Paul's not saying work for your salvation. 
right? As if by your own effort you can obtain salvation. That's not what Paul's saying. That would undermine everything that Paul believes and teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not called to work for our salvation. Rather, we are called to work out that which we already have. We've been given something and we're called to work it out. The idea here is the working of a mine or or working a field so as to get the greatest harvest possible. All of us have abs. We do. You might not see them, but we all have abs on our body. We've been given abs. Every human being has abs. You didn't work for your abs. But some of you have worked on your abs in such a way that your abs are strong and defined. Your abs have reached their full potential. Others of us need to work on that a little bit. But this is the kind of thing that Paul's referring to here. We've been given something. We we have something and we are called to work and define that. to, to, To make it more than what it is, so to speak. We've been given this salvation And now we have to have work to do in regards to that salvation, to grow in our faith, to grow in godliness. We're called to grow as God's people in our salvation. It's not okay to remain as the seed. You must blossom. This phrase here is really just another way for Paul to say in verse 27 of chapter 1, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to unpack, unpack for us this morning what it looks like to work out our salvation. Paul addresses that in verses 14 to 18, which we're going to look at next week. But what I want us to see here is this. The Christian life demands, it demands, it requires hard work. The Christian life demands hard work, striving, diligence, discipline, training. It requires sweat. In in Matthew 7, Jesus is speaking about the the wide gate and the the way that leads to destruction and the narrow gate. And And he says this, and I think a lot of people miss this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Listen, if you want the easy life, Don't be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a narrow gate that we must enter, but there is also a narrow way that we must follow. And that way, Jesus up front says, it is hard. It is difficult, but that way leads to life. The reason why that way is hard, because it demands self-denial. The way is easy that leads to destruction because all you have to do is give in to your instincts. Live the way you want to live and your way will be easy. But the way of Christ is one of self-denial. 
It is hard. It requires discipline. In, uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 7-10, Paul's writing to young Timothy, and he, he says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, some of us need to hear that, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise, promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Train yourself. Toil, strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Train yourself for godliness. This word train here, this word in the Greek, is where we get the the same word gymnasium from. Paul has in mind here the Greek Olympic athlete when he uses this word train. It's actually known that the Greeks used to train naked. And the reason for that was that so they could see on their bodies, as they trained, areas of weaknesses and areas of strength. So they could work on the areas of weakness as they trained. And not only that, did they not only train, they also competed naked. Because they didn't want anything, anything to hinder them from performing at the highest level. And this is what Paul has in mind here when he says, train yourself for godliness. Train for godliness in the same way that athletes train. It demands self-restraint. It demands sweat. It demands discipline. It demands developing healthy habits. It demands ridding yourself of unhealthy habits. You think about what an athlete has to do to perform at the highest level. It requires work. Work. No one drifts into excellence. No one drifts into excellence. No one drifts into physical shape. And no one drifts into godliness. And here's the thing about drifting. Drifting isn't staying neutral. It's always to descend. Drifting leads to mediocrity. Drifting leads to being physically out of shape. Drifting leads not to just, oh, I'm a Christian. No, no. Drifting leads to ungodliness. You cannot grow in godliness if you drift. But you will grow in ungodliness If you drift, a godly person will only ever be someone who has pursued it. So two questions for you this morning. What are you actively doing and pursuing to work out your salvation? What are you saying yes to? But what are you also actively ridding yourself of to work out your salvation What are you saying no to? We're called, as the people of God, to work out our own salvation. Now notice, 
Paul adds that our working out must be done with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. What does Paul mean by fear and trembling? Well, he means fear and trembling. Sometimes people will often say that it's, it's more like um, reverence. And, and there is truth to that. It is, it is a healthy reverence, a right response to that which is worthy of your fear, of your reverence. But it's, it's not just simply reverence. It is an actual fear and trembling that we are to experience. It's not abject terror, but it is fear and trembling. Listen, there's, there's irrational fear, right? There are things we ought not be afraid of. Like, I'm terrified of spiders, and I know I ought not be afraid of it. That's irrational, because I know that spiders can't do me harm unless I'm in the Philippines or something. <laughs> but in Canada, you're okay. That's an irrational fear. But there is rational fear. There are things we ought to be afraid of. Things that are worthy of our fear. If you come across, come face to face with a lion in the jungle. You ought to fear. You ought to have a sense of trembling before this lion. Not because the lion's evil, but because you know that that lion is powerful beyond measure. And you know that you ought to respond rightly to that lion in that moment. If you just said, oh, it's just a lion, whatever, people would think you were foolish. That lion is worthy of your fear. So when Paul states fear and trembling ought to mark, ought to define what it looks like to work out your own salvation, he literally means fear and trembling. Christian, there, there ought to be a level of fear and trembling in our lives as we work out our salvation. And if there isn't, You should be concerned about your soul. Now why? Why fear and trembling? Why not joy and gladness? Why not work out your own salvation with joy and gladness? Paul doesn't say that. Now, Paul has a lot to say about joy in Philippians. But here he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. That's his answer. Why fear and trembling? Because God is at work in you. If if we truly understood who it is at work in us, fear and trembling isn't all that hard to understand. You know, is it possible that in our North American culture, we've so domesticated God. We've we've turned him into a house cat rather than the wild lion that he is, that we've lost sight of the fact that God is dangerous. Yes, he's good, but he's dangerous. And he ought to be feared. Michael Horton says that nobody today seems to think that God is dangerous, and that is itself a dangerous 
oversight. Think, think with me about the power of fear in your life. Fear can either be good for you or bad for you, depending on the object of your fear. The object of your fear has great power over your life. For example, if you fear people, then you will be controlled by the opinions of people. That's why Paul says in in chapter 1, verse 28, to not be afraid of anything by your opponents, those who are in opposition to the gospel. We're not called to fear mankind. But if you do fear people, you will be controlled by people. Fear has a powerful hold in your life in that regard. But if you fear God, then you will be controlled by God. People speak negatively of fear. And there are wrong fears. But fear is a powerful motivation. The Bible everywhere tells the people of God... To fear him, and when God, when they fear him, God rewards them. You know, in in the Chronicles of Narnia, as you can tell, I like C.S. Lewis because I use his illustrations a lot. Um, I think C.S. Lewis captures this so well with the character of Aslan. This idea of fear and trembling. This how 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 the other creatures in Narnia relate to Aslan, how they view him. There is, when you read through the novels, this this great fear and trembling in light of who Aslan is. They, They hear of him and they see him and they know he's a lion. He's a lion. He's the the king of Narnia. And because of this, the other creatures tremble. They tremble before him. They have a a proper fear of Aslan. Yet at the same time, those same creatures long to see him. They long to be near him. They they long to see his greatness, his splendor. They experience a sense of joy and gladness while having this proper fear before him. They can experience the joy and gladness and the fear and trembling at the same time. Because they know that he's good. They know he's the king. They know he's powerful. You know, Lucy and Susan, when they first hear about Aslan and they they find out that he's a lion, and the first thing they ask, of course, is, well, is he tame? And, of course, Mr. Beaver's response is, no, he's not tame, but he's good. He's the king. Our God is not tame, but he is good. Our God is dangerous, not in the sense that he's evil, but no, he is an all-consuming fire. He is holy. He is righteous. He is inherently pure and good, and that's not to be taken lightly. When Israel saw God descend upon the mountain in Exodus, they trembled at the glory that they beheld. They did not want to go near because of what they beheld. The God who stands in unapproachable light, Paul says, is at work in you. And Paul says because of that, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling aren't at odds with joy and love towards God. I think a lot of people think it's the one or the other. You either fear God or you love God. But that's not how the Bible conveys these two realities. The Bible says it's both and. For example, in Psalm 2, verse 11, listen to what the psalmist says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that strange? Rejoice with trembling. So when the psalmist thinks of fear, he understands fear in such a way that it doesn't mean there isn't joyfulness, thankfulness, rejoicing in God. That you can have rejoicing and trembling at the same time. See, this isn't about how much you should love him or how much you should fear him. I don't think the Bible speaks in those two categories. I would argue that the Bible makes clear that the more you love him, the more you'll fear him. And the more you fear him, the more you'll love him. See, fear of God should lead to devotion toward God, not fleeing from God. Like those who run from God... They don't fear him. When God says, come to me, believe upon me, know me, and the human heart says, no, and they run, that's not fear, that's pride. Fear is to hear God, what he says, what he calls us to do, and to respond to that because you fear him, because you know he's worthy of your obedience, he's worthy of your worship. So running from God is not fear. Running toward him is. So we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Second thing I want us to see this morning is this. Our working out our own salvation is utterly dependent upon God working in us. Our working out can only occur because God is at work within. That's what he says in verse 13, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's saying working out your salvation is utterly dependent of God working on your will and on your work. Now, what I want you to see here is God gives the command. Okay, he gives the command, work out your own salvation. But he also provides the enabling power to fulfill the command. So when the Bible gives commands, you should never assume that because God gives a command, you then have the power within yourself to fulfill the command. That's not the pattern of the scriptures. The pattern of the scriptures is God gives a command. You are utterly incapable of fulfilling that command within yourself. But God in his power and grace empowers you to fulfill the command that he has given. Now this doesn't mean that you do 50% of the work and God does 50% of the work. 
That's not what Paul's saying here. No, no. God is 100% doing the work within you, and you are 100% working out your salvation. But the source, where the power comes from, resides in God, not you. There's not a single sin in your life that can be overcome by mere human effort. And this is why none of us will ever be able to say to God, you owe me because I did all these things for you. God will simply respond, yes, you did do all those things for me, but you did it by the grace that I gave you, by the enabling power that I put in you. There are two texts I think that really capture what Paul's speaking about here. In Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, hear this, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Okay? So God is equipping you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So the God of peace is equipping you with everything good so that you and I, as brothers and sisters, as the church of God, so that we might do his will. We might do, we might work, we might do all that which is necessary for our salvation. But then he says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So God's desire is for us to do his will and he is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight so that we might do his will. He's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So at the end of all time when we are glorified, we will all say this was God's work, not mine. 1 Corinthians 15.10 is a famous passage many of you are probably familiar with. Paul here is he's comparing himself to the other apostles and he's, he's saying that he's not like the other apostles. They, they are far superior than him. But he says this in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Okay, so God's grace was not in vain towards Paul, and now he says, how? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than all the other apostles. Now, if Paul were to end his sentence there, we would have some concerns. Paul would have reason to boast. Paul would have reason to be arrogant. I worked harder than all the other apostles. But he doesn't end there. He says, though it was not I. What? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. I was able to work harder than all the other apostles. God's grace toward me was not in vain because I worked harder than all of them, but it wasn't I. 
It was God's empowering grace towards me. You know, often we define grace as divine favor, and and it's true in, in one sense, but grace, when you read the New Testament, it's actually more about empowerment. God's grace towards us is an empowering reality in our lives. And Paul's saying here, I worked harder. I worked harder, though not I, but God's grace that is with me. Which one is it? Is it me or is it God's grace? And Paul would say, it's both, and I can't explain to you how it works. I'm working, I'm doing, but it's God empowering, God enabling me. Now notice here in Philippians, Paul states that God is working in you both to will and to work. Which means he's, he's active on your will. God is actually working on your will, your heart, your desires, your affections. He is changing your desires. If you've been a Christian long enough, I pray that your affections have changed to some degree. That the things you once loved and delighted in, you no longer delight in. And the things you never thought you'd ever delight in, you do delight in now. He's active on your will. He's working on your will. But he's also active in your working, in your acting out, in your behavior. And this this is really just exactly what Paul says in Philippians 1.6, right? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work within you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is certain, he is sure, that what God has began, begun in us, he will then bring it to completion. Because he's presently active. You know, this, this language of God working in you, on your will, internally, but also externally, on your, 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 your working it out, your active behavior, It reminds me of the promise of the new covenant. I think Paul has in the back of his mind Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 when he writes this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will cause us to walk in his statutes. So we're called to to work out because God is working in. God is working in. Now some of you may have some questions in light of this. Like, if it's God working in me, why am I still struggling with certain sins? Why are there certain sins in my life that I had before I was a Christian and I'm still struggling with to this day? You ever ask that question? And my my response to you is, I don't know for sure. I don't pretend to know the mind of God. His ways are not our ways. But I do have some thoughts on this, some observations But I want to say, take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Um, This is more based upon my observations as I've walked with the Lord and as I've studied scripture and and experience of life. And there's there's a lot of things I could say, but I just want to 
us to think about two things. If God is working in me, why am I still struggling with certain sins? Well, one, I think God, you might be shocked by this, will sometimes allow us to struggle with things for his greater purposes. Because he's infinitely wise in what he's doing. Far wiser than you or I. He sees the whole picture. And I think the Apostle Peter is a great example of this. I think God, in his infinitely wise providence, allowed Peter to deny Jesus three times to humble him. Right? What was Jesus' attitude? What was Peter's attitude when Jesus said that you're all going to fall away? No, 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 Jesus. No, no. Even if everyone else falls away, I will remain. I will die with you. Peter, I love your enthusiasm. But before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In Luke 22, 31 to 32, there's this incredible statement that Jesus says to Peter. It blows my mind away. He says this. This is, this is just before Christ's crucifixion where he confronts him about the fact that he's going to deny him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan has come to me, Peter, and he has demanded to destroy you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? No. No. Why? Jesus prayed for him. And Jesus never prays in vain. He always prays according to the will of God. So what happened with Peter? He fell. He fell into sin, but he did not fail. His faith did not abandon him completely. And that's why Jesus says to him, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is, your faith may not fail to its uttermost. Why? And when you have turned again. See that? Jesus understands, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but you're also going to turn again. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That is an incredible verse. Satan has demanded to have you, Peter. But I have prayed for you. That though you will deny me three times, your faith will not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. God, I think, sometimes will allow us to struggle with certain things for his greater purposes. That might be hard for us to grasp. But he has the full picture. He has the full story. I sometimes wonder if God allows certain sins in people's lives to keep them from other worse sins. Secondly, God has the power to transform all of us with the snap of his finger. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And my conclusion to that is that I think God delights in the craft, the process, 
just as he delights in the end product. Pierce Hibbs states this, that that God loves the craft of creation and providence. His passion, it seems to me, is not just in the product, the the perfect moment of a sunrise, but in the process, the symphonic movement from dawn to daylight. The craft itself, the process, is stored in his eternal divine memory. And I think it's the same when it comes to our sanctification, our salvation. He wills the long and sometimes painful process of shaping us into the image of his son. He delights in the slow process of beautifying you and making you as radiant as you possibly could be. Parents, think about this. You probably understand this better than most. I'm not a, I'm not a, a parent. I'm not a dad. I'm an uncle, and, and it, it grieves me to see how quickly my, nephew and, my nephews and niece are growing up. I want it to slow down. Parents, imagine if your child went from six months to 24 years old in one day. What would that feel like? What would that feel like for them to go from six months to 24 and be ready for their wedding day? See, part of what excites you about your children becoming adults and getting married and and going out on their own is that you've been a part of that slow process of seeing them mature as an individual and seeing them grow over time. And that process is painful at times. It's filled with tears, but it's also filled with joy. But if that process was taken from you as a parent, the delight of being a father or a mother would not be the same. And our God is a father. And he delights to see his children grow and mature over a period of time, to see them become what they were always meant to be. And it grieves him at times because of how foolish and disobedient we can be, but it also brings great joy to him when he sees us taking those steps of obedience and faith towards him. It delights God to work in you over a period of time, his perfect and complete will. And this is precisely why why we're told that he's working in us here in verse 13, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. God delights in working in his children. He delights to work in you. He is currently working in you whether you see it or not. He's committed. He's devoted to working in you. He delights to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Brothers and sisters, we've been given a job. We've been given a calling. Work out your own salvation. And that call is for us individually, but also corporately as a body. But God has also provided in himself the power to fulfill that task. You know, radical Christian living, 
isn't necessarily going overseas and laying your life down for Jesus. Though I hope some of you may do that. But radical Christian living is the daily discipline of training yourself for godliness. And by God's empowering grace, it can be done. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us and empower us by your spirit to work out that which you are working in our hearts. That we might walk in your ways and be blameless before you. We pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.